This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. Who are you introducing to us today? Today I am introducing one of my most favourite people in all the world, Sir Michael Cullen, um, who lives here in Ohopi Beach. And um, he's right in the thick of writing at the moment, so it's a really busy time for him. Uh, So I'm so stoked that we get to talk to you today, Michael. Thank you. No worries at all. Um, Great pleasure. Welcome, Michael. So how was the the bubble life for you? Well, a bit different from most people. I was pretty much focused on having chemotherapy for stage four um, small cell lung cancer. (laughs) I I wasn't actually um, that keen on rushing out and doing loads of things uh, apart from that. The more you have it, the less you you feel like doing anything really except feeling miserable. Um, But but that stopped a few weeks ago actually, so um, I'm now beyond that stage of uh, having to have chemotherapy except for one semi-experimental drug which uh, I have every three weeks. That doesn't seem to have quite the same side effects as as the anti-cancer drugs they're having. And of course when you're older, and because of the cancer diagnosis that I had, I'd already given up nearly all my jobs before the, the main impact of of COVID-19 hit. Um, there was just one job I carried on doing through to the, the end of June, which was chairing the Earthquake Commission. Uh, so I began to sit down and start writing, because I spent so many decades working, but not working at all even when I wasn't feeling too well. Um, <laughs> seemed rather odd so <laughs> I started simply writing a few pages to put into the Hocken collection in Dunedin about my personal life um, to go with the very large um, shelf meterage of, of uh, official papers and other things uh, which are in the Hocken collection and then it just sort of kind of transmogrified into a, into a book which is not really an autobiography, it's a kind of mixture of an autobiography and uh, um, a, a political history um, from a, a specific perspective on the sort of uh, moderate cent- social democratic centre-left, which, which is a position which uh, a lot of people support, but doesn't get much coverage actually in, 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 the, in the general discourse. It's either to the right or further to the left. And how is the writing going? Well, um, a couple of days ago, I passed 100,000 words, um, which sounds a lot until you've actually seen how many words are in a book. 
because uh, the, the other thing I did during COVID-19 was I, I finally uh, achieved a, a long-term, not so much ambition, but um, pleased to myself that I would read Tolstoy's War and Peace, all 1,400 pages of it. Um, and <laughs> yes, that, that, that was a sort of large exercise. And unlike modern books, novels, which are sort of full of lots of blank stuff, um, Tolstoy's work is, is fairly intense all the way through. And is it nearly done? I've got, yes, I managed, I managed to complete that um, about three, three, three weeks or so ago, just sort of regular uh, working at it day by day. Um, a very strange book because most of it is a novel um, and a very impressive one, but then there's about 250 pages of it of, of various kinds of um, byways into Tolstoy's particular philosophy of history. So it's quite unlike reading any other novel I've ever read. And your book, are you working through it chronologically or is it in themes? Or how, yes, how's yes the, no. What's the pattern? Basically, yeah, basically chronologically. Um, uh, I might better get down to the need now for a few days. I really should be there all the time because that would be the main source if I was to do a proper sort of academic work. Um, and, and contrary to a general view, um, there's rather less online than, than people may think. I mean, there are things like the Hansard records of Parliament, but even for those, there were a number of years where the indexes were missing. So that made it rather difficult. Um, I have some friends who run a business called the uh, Knowledge Basket, uh, but you have to know what it is you want to look up, that is, you know, who was speaking or what the subject was, and then you can get straight in into that, whereas the indexes give you a chance to remind yourself what was going on because, you know, you, you do tend to forget most of it. Um, Wikipedia, but um, an awful lot of Wikipedia is quite unreliable, I found, having gone into it. I mean, there were, I picked up so many mistakes or things I knew were wrong that I began to worry about the things I was relying on um, for, for, for being right. Um, and then there are sort of sites like the beehive.govt.nz which have all the ministerial statements um, going back many years. So that that also gives you quite an insight into what was happening because I don't have access sitting here in Fakatani to um, things like going trawling through the main newspapers and, and, and things of that sort. So are you, you're trained as as and historian, are you treating yourself as the the subject, or how is the? Um, well, it's, it's it's written where I need to in the first person. Although it's not not written the first person because I don't necessarily figure as the as, as, as the major thing that's being described. Um, so, so as I say, it's 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 more political history. So there's quite a lot about how my views differ from those of Roger Douglas in the 1980s. Um, a lot about um, my views of the national government in the 1990s, and now I've basically just completed writing up the 1999 election where um, we got back into government, um, putting together my office, um, and then now uh, I'm about to do a bit more research, trawling through various sources to remind myself what was actually happening, because strangely enough, I have practically no memory at all what was happening in caucus 
for most of the 1990s, or what actually happened in cabinet. You know, I'm not. I'm always amazed that people can write these things that they say. Well, I can remember X so and so saying in the cabinet meeting on such and such, and I said da 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 da. And of course, I was right, and they were wrong. It's the sort of usual subtext in those kinds of things in autobiography. But um, you know, I, I just don't have that memory. I think in part because after the stresses and strains of the 1984 to 90 government, um, and particularly after 93, we weren't having lots of internal arguments. Um, we didn't have that many in cabinet, really. So if you're not having the arguments, you tend not to remember what was, was being done. I mean, you're just working through an enormous mess of documents, um, which is, is part of being a, a politician in government. I think most people wouldn't have any idea how many decisions um, a senior minister is making every day so that when somebody sort of asks you to remember what were you thinking when the government decided um, to close such and such a um, child welfare institution I'm sort of my first reaction is oh did we <laughs> what was I thinking <laughs> how do you maintain the the big vision the vision of the better world and not have that taken away by yeah. the, the the detail of those day-to-day -day decisions with huge difficulty um i, I sometimes say a, a couple of things I think one thing is that you can you can classify ministers in whatever government along two axes um one is sort of being roughly right or being roughly wrong the other is effective and versus ineffective um there's a quadrant of ineffective and right, which means that basically the minister is following his or her ministries or department's advice on almost every issue. In other words, the sort of glorified glove puppet <laughs> for the bureaucracy. Um, you've got the sort of crucial quadrant, the top, top right-hand quadrant, which is usually right and effective. You've got the really dangerous quadrant, which is effective and usually wrong. Um, my prime example of that uh, in the politics of my time is, is Nick, Dr. Nick Smith, who has an enormous capacity to be wrong, but is actually has been a highly effective minister during his times in, in government. He gets things done. Unfortunately, they're usually the wrong things. Um, and then there, there are those who are, are both ineffective and wrong, but they usually get found out fairly quickly and um, are quietly dropped by the wayside, or basically somebody else goes, goes and does the work for them. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met She's just a girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met It'd been another day, I might have looked the other way And I'd have never been aware But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight la, da, 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 da. Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again I have never known the like of this I've been alone and I have missed things and kept out of sight But other girls were never quite like this Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again yeah. 
again I've just seen her face, I can't forget the time Or place where we just met, she's just the girl for me And I want all the world to see we've met mm -hmm. Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again You said that he was doing things wrong. I've long had a belief that anybody that's that's in Parliament or is doing some sort of leadership is doing it for the for the for the best reasons. Ah, yes. Now that's I think an important difference. So, you know, I think the, the media tends to be very cynical and assume that, that nearly all politicians are completely motivated by self-interest um, and and what's more, by some kind of sort of mendacity, not just mendacity, but, but sort of but sort of greed uh, as well. You know, they go in politics and then a lot more money than they would have done if they stayed um, outside politics. I think the vast majority of politicians go into politics because they, they want to make the country better. Um, but of course, people's ideas of what makes the country better um, can be very, very, very different. So um, you have people who do a lot of harm, even though they think they're doing good. Um, and uh, that's you know, it's not unusual in politics. I mean, um, I, think, I think Roger Douglas did a lot of things in the first term which were necessary, but he effectively, I think, got carried away with an extreme um, ideology. So he ended up doing quite a lot of harm and wanted to do more, um, even at the point where he was removed from office. Uh, he really wanted to carry on and, and privatise our social services uh, in a way which would have done incalculable harm to the very people that Roger actually wanted to help. Um, and that's where I differ from a lot of people on the left who think that Roger was a sort of evil, dark force. Um, unfortunately, no. I think he was um, really meant well, but but got off on the wrong track. Um, now, because a, a lot of the other problem with politics is you're so buried, I think the question you were asking previously, you're so buried in the immediate day-to-day -day decisions and the, and the sort of the things which dominate headlines in the news, like, you know, somebody's just broken their window in a, um, uh, a quarantine facility and has, has climbed out and, 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 and got away kind of thing which, you know, will, unless there's communi community transmission as a consequence, will be entirely forgotten in a few weeks' time. Um, but politics, the day-to-day -day politics, is often about those kinds of things. So trying to make sure that you, you keep your mind focused as well on the bigger picture issues and the longer-term issues, which are going to have much more effect um, down the track. I mean, ob obvious ones today are, are things like climate change. Um, what do we do about poverty in a society where most people don't want to pay lots more tax? And it's very hard to do a lot about poverty if people are prepared to pay um, a lot more tax. You can do some things, but not as much as you would like to do. Um, you can do some things in the climate change area, but 
there are still major changes to come, um, which some people will be adversely affected. So the question becomes, how do you help people through those adverse effects of change um, rather than either giving up the change or just saying, you know, suck it up and that's your hard luck kind of thing, um, which is really what the economic reforms of 1984 to 93 ended up being. They were, they were sort of a mass exercise and suck it up. Uh, and some people did very well out of it and some people did very badly uh, indeed. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, bubble people. How's it going? Hope you're having a great day. Um, today is one of those days when you just feel the freshness in the air, don't you? Dunedin wintry times, that's what I'm experiencing at the moment. Um, loving my heat pump, I'm guessing a few other people are, uh, whatever your source of warmth might be. And um, my morning walks are always like a bit of a gauntlet of, okay, how many layers do I put on? And am I preparing for frost, ice... Uh, rain, wind, it's, it's all a bit of a, it's a Dunedin mix-up and that's what I love about the weather here actually. We do love to talk about the weather in New Zealand, don't we? <laughs> but it's one of those commonalities that we can all get behind and understand because we're uh, in these wonderful islands that do get the most amazing weather changes and I think that's an, one of the things I love about living here is just that changeability of the weather. You get, you get Sure, you do get a lot of um, a lot of weather, but <laughs> but it's never boring. And while it's sometimes hard to prepare for, it's always fun. And uh, I've found on my walks when there's been a little bit of frostiness, uh, it's it's about navigating sort of where where the black ice might be, where where the sparkly goodness might be, and sort of in in between the actual walking exercise and then the skating that I do every so often in the middle, and. I used to get really frustrated with that kind of thing, but now I actually see it as a real opportunity to kind of enjoy the little slippery moments, keep my eyes peeled for them, um, be alert, but also enjoy the kind of little moments of calm in between. So maybe that's a little analogy for life today. Enjoy the the moments of calm, but look out for those slippery surfaces just to, um, you know, keep your eyes alert and uh, take care of yourself, whatever you might be doing. Okay, hope you're having a great day. Take care. How do you raise yourself above the the theatre? I mean, to some extent, you must have to use ah. that theatre. But how do you raise above the theatre and the, how the the seedier side of that, the gotcha politics and so on? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I was very much part of the theatre. I mean, I loved I loved the debating aspect of 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 politics, particularly in question time, which I think is a is a fantastic way of finding out. At least those who can think quickly, if nothing else, um, and and some quite good people can't think quickly, so they do very badly uh, in question time. Uh, in a way, I think you've got to see the theatre is is important because what is not often recognised is that you know people say, why do you argue so much? Well, actually, most things in Parliament go through without a lot of argument. Most mm-hmm. things are broadly agreed upon. Um, and by the very nature of the business, because the amount of time you spend in Parliament is relatively limited, then the opposition, which largely chooses how much time is spent on things, chooses those things that it can differentiate itself on, that it doesn't agree with the government on. 
And if we didn't do that, then people outside would be saying, well, why aren't you attacking the government and this, that and the other? You're useless. We need a new political party which will represent my views. And if nobody does that, then the real danger is that people decide that democratic politics, which are expressed through a parliamentary system, has failed them. So then they seek other other remedies, if you like, a polite way of saying um, become revolutionaries or terrorists or whatever it may be, um, because there is no institutionalized way for their views to to gain expression and and to have a chance of uh, at some point being being implemented or or fulfilled, and I think you have to separate that theatre part, which you know at most is is three afternoons and evening a week normally for thirty weeks of the year from all the other time, so that when you walk out of that house and back to your office, then you're into those those bigger policy issues as well as the small policy issues, which which are the bread and butter of, of the job of being government. And if you're in opposition, hopefully spending some time working out what it is you actually want to do and then trying to make sure you haven't trapped yourself in into saying the opposite of that when you're in Parliament, which is one of the big dangers for opposition. You know, the government does X, so the opposite says not X, and then it discovers actually its policy is sort of X X um, X point two, so to speak, and then they have trouble said, explaining it, and, and 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 then and then people's sort of trust in politics tends to tends to decline. New Zealand's I think response you see that most to the in in America, where you have those primaries, where uh, where you're Democrat or Republican, you have to climb out onto the further end of your spectrum to get to win the primary, and then you have to somehow paddle your way back towards yeah. the middle. Um, to get elected, and and everybody looks at it and thinks, well, that's not what you said six months ago, sort of thing. Sorry, you were saying, Sam. New Zealand seems to have come out of the pandemic so far, at least, as as some people are describing as the envy of the world. What do you put that down to? Well, partly luck. I mean, we should never, never ignore the luck element in these sorts of things. Um, when we think of those two women who drove to Wellington, they probably had enough contact that they could have sparked off um, community transmission. They didn't. So, so that that was a bit of luck. Um, but as always in life, you know, luck's on your side. I mean, half the soccer grains in the English Premier League are won by luck as much as much as the superior skill um, of, the, of the winning team. But also, uh, I think our position is part of that luck. I mean, it was, it's easier for us to close off our borders and to apply strict quarantine uh, regulations and so on. And much more difficult if you're sitting in a European country or even when recently, you know, Victoria uh, has gone in to try to close off its borders. You think, well, there must be an enormous number of ways that people can travel from Victoria to New South Wales or Victoria to South Australia. I've been closing off every possible entry route into into those countries is, is hugely those states is, is hugely difficult. I, I would have thought in Europe, where you've, you know, you've you've got supposedly free, free transfer of citizens across all the borders within Europe. Um, that's that's very very hard. Uh, so I think we, we had luck, but also we had a very good judgment in, in as, as Jacinda always puts it, move hard, move early. A lot of countries fluffed around for an awful long time. 
and the USA is still fluffing around. I mean, you've got a complete disjunction between um, the federal government, at least the head of it, parts of the federal government are doing their, their best, um, and many of the states. I mean, Republican states feel the need to follow the president. But some of them are trying to move back from that stance because they're facing um, significant um, further outbreaks of, of COVID-19. So that, um, and I think also um, the way it was explained, uh, the continuous communication day by day took people with us on the journey. And what you saw, I think, as we moved from four to three, three to two, two to one, is some breaking down of um, that, that, that sort of continuity and, and that support because people got, got impatient to get to the, to the next point. But we were lucky that, that, that so far we haven't had a second outbreak. I mean, the, some of the media, especially television, is having trouble understanding and conveying the point that when we say two or three new cases today, these are people intercepted at the border and put into quarantine. Um, these are not two or three cases like we were previously counting, which were community transmission within New Zealand uh, from, thankfully, in most cases, um, relatively identifiable sources. So they were able to close down reasonably quickly. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha nui kia koutou, ko I hope you're all having the best day. Beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very stimulating, very rejuvenating, very energizing, very healing, very transformatory, very inspiring, very creative, very nourishing, and that this journey is illuminating for you more and more who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect as all life is, unique as all life is, eternal as all life is infinite as all life is and as all life does you are here making things better and whether consciously or not everything that you do is precious everything that you are is precious and for me I'm so grateful to have worked in the real world the living world the natural world for the last 15 years here in Aute Porty Stun Eden and I'm really grateful to have had a childhood in Broad Bay here in Aote Dunedin, up a tree or in the sea, and then when moving to big cities in the UK, still being able to find these patches of the real world that I could explore. And what this connection has given me is that sense of connection with all life and that knowledge that we are all contributing to the co-evolution on this paradise planet. Thank you. And I'll talk with you tomorrow. Kakiti. What do you think we can learn for the the bigger questions, the intergenerational type issues, the climate change, social justice, from how we've responded to this pandemic? 
I think we we need to to learn a number of things, and depends where you're starting from. Um, I, I wrote an article, which I'm not quite sure where it appeared, but it appeared, um, where I said I think uh, environmentalists need to learn that that GDP doesn't count everything. It does count some things, which mean something. But when your unemployment goes up to 10%, and your GDP drops by 10 or 20%, it does actually have real-world effects, and and some people are suffering. I mean, most of us didn't actually suffer very much at all. Most of us are lucky. We're either um, retired or um, we work from home or we're in a job we were able to work from home. We're in a job where even if um, we weren't doing any work, we still continued to be paid, which is the story really of the public service. Um, but then the burden was really borne by those who lost their jobs or, or lost their businesses or... Um, suffered large reductions in pay uh, or, or whatever um, during that period. I, I think um, the, the left in general needs to understand the importance of the private sector uh, in, in our economy. Um, Tendency sometimes to downplay that and understand the importance of, of the business sector, which generates a large proportion um, of, of our jobs. Um, I think... Uh, environmentalists need to learn the value of good science because good science is very important in um, getting greater knowledge of what the nature of the virus was. I and mean, we've learned more and more as time's gone on. But there was an enormous amount of very good science went into action very quickly so that, for example, uh, the genome was, was identified uh, very, very rapidly. Uh, for COVID-19. So we quickly identify what the source was um, and what the transmission was uh, and so on and so on. We had then some difficult arguments around uh, some other matters associated with that. And and there is quite a movement uh, across a wide range of political affiliations in, in uh, developed economies of, of rejecting science these days, you know, anti-vaccination, um, I think we do have to have another debate around uh, genetic modification um, because um, I think we all pro pretty much all probably agree we don't want transgenic um, experimentation and activity, which was the heart of uh, GM research 20 years ago. Um, but the GM research going on these days is quite different and doing quite different things and could be enormously important in helping us overcome many of our environmental uh, problems in New Zealand, as well as being important in transforming agricultural base uh, into one which does less one of, harm on the environment. So I think those kinds of and the right. I just, just one more point. So the right has to learn a very simple lesson that's going to be entirely hypocritical, which is stop talking the whole time about the fact that government is useless, um, because people of right wing persuasions were lined up all the way down Lambton Key and up Willis Street begging for money from the government um, throughout this crisis. And so I don't take seriously any longer people who argue that small government is best and we just keep reducing taxes as much as we can and getting government out of everything. But I think we need to get a new model of government uh, for the future, one which is not so bureaucratically cranky and creaky um, as, as the present model of government tends to be. In addition to the the effect it's going to have on the people who are gladly took the, the handouts of various forms now demanding tax cuts. 
making that argument look a bit weak. I think one of the impacts is going to be that it's shown that change is possible. Do you think that's yes. going to make it harder or easier for future politicians? I would I would hope it would make it easier, but I think we slip back into um, that kind of mode, which is in one area called NIMBYism, but I think NIMBYism is, is actually a whole set of attitudes that we tend to carry around with us anyway. You know, I'm 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 for change as long as I'm going to immediately benefit from it. But if if there's any kind of um, transitional impact on me, I'm, I'm against it. And and I think we all tend to fall into that trap uh, sooner sooner or later. And and um, people of my age and, and older tend to be particularly prone to that kind of of, of set of attitudes. Uh, but I would hope that that we can take out of this that that. We are capable of working for the common good when we really need to. The problem is that, 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 that most of our big problems are either in their worst form down the track, but we have to start act, taking action now. I mean, climate change is the obviously the principal um, example of that. Or they are ones where the impact on the general public is a kind of creeping, um, how can I put it, kind of creeping de de degeneration of our common humanity. And I think poverty comes into that. You know, the, the, poverty, the poor are somewhere else for most of us. Uh, and in a place like Fakatani, you can almost ignore poverty, <coughs> even though there's a lot of it. Um, if you live in Wellington, going to the central city or Auckland, you can't because you see people on the streets begging. Um, we don't see much of that in, in the smaller centres. But the fact that we tolerate high levels of poverty and the fact that we tolerate intergenerational poverty and the fact that we tolerate poverty which is peculiarly biased ethnically um, does detract from our, our general humanity. And if we keep turning aside from that, um, then it says a lot about the way our science is developing. I mean, I, I'm an atheist, but I think there's still a huge number of lessons in in Christianity and other religions that, that we can still learn. I mean, the parable of Good Samaritan, um, I think, is a sort of classic one of those in in that context and and bluntly most of us still cross the street and walk down the other side of all of the changes we've seen in the last few months what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick i i suppose because of my my background and 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 my work in in government i really hope that we can have a much more sensible attitude towards the size of government, if you like, in terms of the proportion of GDP that we need to ensure goes into the coffers. But then also, I think a much more sensible debate about the nature of the, of the way government's organised. It's, it's organised in a terribly negative way, uh, which I think is why so many people don't like government. Um, it, while it does a lot of helping, it does a lot of not helping as well, a lot of stopping and a lot of negativity. And, and it's structured in a way where governments are seen to do things to the people um, 
Whereas I think we need to develop a different kind of high trust model where governments are seen to be doing things with the people. And it's much easier to do that in a small country like ours than it is in a, a large and, and complex country like the United States or United Kingdom or Germany or, or even Spain or, or, or whatever. And we don't take advantage of, of that smallness. I mean, um, I spent a lot of time working in, in uh, the, the sort of Treaty of Waitangi space over the last 10 or 12 years. And we're still having trouble developing proper partnerships between government, iwi, Maori trusts, in order to fulfill the, if you're unlike, not just the promise of the treaty, uh, but the promise of empowering uh, iwi and trusts and, and, and whānau to, to succeed within this world that, that, that we of necessity live in. Um, and we think the treaty settlements are sufficient to do that, but they're, they're a drop in the bucket. Um, uh, the great majority of iwi don't become rich and wealthy on the basis of, of, of a treaty settlement. It's a chance to go beyond the grievances in which you can get stuck. Um, but it should be, how do we think about those that treaty relation, the treaty relationships, plural, as I envisage them, not the sort of single treaty relationship between the Crown and Māori or some sort of big amorphous blob, um, but actually Māori and the way that Māori actually live and identify, um, whether they're in cities or towns or still living um, close to, 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 to their traditional marae, um, how do we have effective partnerships which mean that we address all those social economic problems which still afflict Māori to a much larger extent than the rest of the population. We talked yeah, before you, about a vision of a better world. If you could wave a magic wand and have a miracle occur <laughs> in terms of that, that vision, what would you have happen? <sighs> well, I think what I'd love to see happen is us all of us casting off our various uniforms and, and I was about to say tribal laws, I'm just talking about Iwi, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean, but the ruts that we stick ourselves into willingly uh, and refuse to move out of uh, and to communicate better and to find what I think is the much larger common ground that we usually grudgingly are prepared to admit that we have. And I think if we did that, um, I mean, we've done this in many important respects. When I was in politi politics long enough to go from a period when saying that you supported equal rights for homosexual people was a sort of sure way of getting doors slammed in your face, to now where anybody um, expresses the view that that should be happened, doors get slammed in their faces. Um, now that's a huge change. I mean, it's an enormous change in attitudes. We are bad as we are still much, much better on treaty issues than we were 30, 40 years ago. My first election was 1981, the Springbok tour year. Um, and I was out canvassing on the day of the Hamilton test match when, you know, the planes flew over and the, and the Red Squad and so on mm -hmm. uh, were attacking people. 
I don't think you could recognize um, uh, much of our race relations now in what happened in 1981, but still we haven't we haven't operationalized, if I can use that sociologist sort of term, um, that those changes in attitudes into real gains for the people who most need those real gains. So we we don't sort of any longer say it's awful that somebody, a telephone operator, um, to think of such things in the past, who picked up the phone and said, Kiara, um, we don't sort of think, oh my goodness me, you get slammed by the Prime Minister for doing that, which is what happened in, in, the, in the late 1970s, <laughs> believe it or not. I mean, you just listen to radio these days and a whole host of Maori words are now becoming parts of New Zealand English and, and New Zealand language. Um, but we still, as I say, we do that stuff. We don't do the stuff that we really need to do anything like well enough. And we won't do it until we are operating quite different models of government and operating models which are partnership-based rather than government and citizens or government and we're still consumers, a term I hate when it's in terms of what the government does. Um, because that gets us off on the wrong foot straight away.
I have some questions to end the show with. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Ah, uh, Goodness me. Uh, I think facing up to my cancer diagnosis um, and dealing with it without falling apart has meant very big changes in my life. Um, and I've been very, very much supported by my wife, Anne, um, in in that regard. I mean, I could give you a list of other things, but really, I think I think a personal one for a change. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our right. team of people doing good work. So you're in our mansion. What's the superpower that's got you there? No, I mean, I've, I've changed in personality in some ways a lot over the time, over the decades. Um, I'm far less verbally aggressive now than I used to be. I think I understand a lot more about a, a much wider range of people um, than, I, than I did. So I think the, the openness to ideas, um, the refusal to dig yourself into those ruts, which I was talking about earlier, I, I think is something which um, I'm quite proud of, but I think is, is really important uh, to being able to become future focused and to realize that what you're doing now, even in the last period of your life, may still have some impact upon how your grandchildren are living, or my grandchildren are living, um, when they're my age. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, probably not, because I went into politics, and the way um, activism tends to take place outside politics but influences politics. 
some people go from activism to politics. I didn't. I mean, I went through a sort of classic route of joining a Labour Party branch, getting on the committee, becoming the chair of the branch, being active at the electorate level, going to Labour Party conferences, and when the opportunity arose, um, putting my name in to, to become the candidate for my for my local seat. Um, so I didn't go through an activist route, though. You know, I I marched against various things, but I wasn't a leader um, in those marches. So where's something like my friend Keith Locke, um, long-standing Green and and left activist? Um, what I'm sure described myself as an activist. Um, I describe myself as a sort of um, politician who doesn't want to look at the used by date on the label um, because I've got a horrible feeling it's a bit in the past. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? <sighs> getting up. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm, I've been so keen on getting on my book. That's another reason to get out of bed. But the other reason, um, particularly when the summer months come, is I'm a mad keen bad golf player. And I live a kilometre from the Ahopi um, golf course. And if any of, of the people who listen to this program play golf, get yourself down here. This is one of the most beautiful golf courses in the country. Uh, and it's cheap to pl- play on. Um, and it's quite a challenge. Um, so that's, that's, that's my exercise, uh, form of exercise. But the writing, um, I'm going to be write, doing some uh, columns for the Herald uh, in the next few weeks leading up to the election. Um, and I still love doing that stuff. I, I, when I ended the EQC job, I, I, I said to Grant, I don't want any more sort of long-term jobs, but you know, I'm still available for the odd job. Um, if, if anything comes up, you might think I'd be useful uh, in assisting with. I just like doing things um, like that. I used to do stuff around the house in terms of renovating it in my younger days, my first wife in our house in Dunedin, but last 20 years I've had relatively modern houses that don't need a lot of work and now I'm basically past doing anything that's significant anyway. So what challenges are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to coping with my own illness when when the cancer does come back. At the moment I don't know whether I could say I was in remission but um, the, the chemotherapy has been I think successful beyond my, my wildest dreams at this stage and certainly my wife's wildest nightmares um, at this stage. Um, I look to seeing more of, of, of my grandchildren if, if I can. Um, I look to finishing this book and hopefully finding a publisher who won't say, God, this is boring. Uh, it's all full of politics, um, but we shall see. And if not, well, I'll just send off a, 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 the e-version of the book um, down to the Hocken collection and they can stick it away, whatever file I'm on puts and such things and somebody might look at it at some point in in the future does it have a title it's called labor saving which is a bit of a pun on um being a major part of of getting labor back onto a much more orthodox social democratic track uh, within the framework of an open economy but also of course particular reference to things like kiwi saver and the super fund and, and things of that sort it's all got had a big impact. Yes. Well, well, I hope so. Um, it's unfortunate that KiwiSaver was mucked around with in the previous government and that nothing was put into the into the super fund. But 
but nevertheless, I mean, it's, um, there are two things together, which even after the impact of COVID-19 are worth a good $100 billion. Um, and that's not a bad legacy to, to, to leave the country in terms of a fund of savings. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, my advice would be, and it would be the same advice for any politician, be yourself. Um, unless, of course, you have kind of violent tendencies. But, but be yourself. Be, be true to yourself. Um, be true to those that, that you love. Um, and if you can do that, and whatever else you do, you, you'll lead a happy life. And all of, well, I've been through some, some tough times, and indeed I went through one small period of depression in the late 90s. Um, I've had a happy and fulfilling life. Thank you for that. Mawera. Uh, Michael, I was um, just going through the children's KiwiSaver statements with them um, a few weeks ago, and as, as we went through them and the kids were sort of looking at what they'd saved and, and what they'd chosen to invest in in the last, their last round and how yep. proud they were to have that. And it's such an incredible gift that um, to, to have children who can be fully engaged in their own investment um, and to be part of creating their financial future. And I know that you have made so many contributions, but that one directly touches my family and, and I really feel just, I feel real gratitude um, that you've enabled this beautiful thing in my kids where they can be focused on creating their own future in such a positive way. And, um, Thank and you, just, thanks for everything, Michael, really, you're great. <laughs> I appreciate you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Marina. Thank you. Okay. And Sam, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and Sir Michael Cullen in Ohopi Beach. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.